Thank you. Talk Recorded live. Hello, Ian Fink, and this is Chris Denny. You're on Talk Shoe. Thank you for listening. As Yahweh, the God of true Israel. Tonight is um, Friday, May 4th, 2012. I have to thank you, ProThink.org, for um, filling in on the board for me tonight. Matt, Matthew Watt is, um, well, well, Dave Aikett, and, and he was filling in for Matthew Watt, and Matthew is picking Cheryl Ott up in the hospital tonight. She had her on her brain. She had a brain tumor removed. That's not the ideal. That, that may not be the ideal cure, but that's what happened. And, and uh, Cheryl seems to be committed to trying to her ills through naturopathy, and, and we would encourage her to pursue that. And we are doing our best to assist her in that endeavor. And we should, um, well, well, I'll have Cheryl in my prayers, and, and, and I would, um, Hope that the other people, the people listening to tonight to me, will also. We hope that she has recovery. Yahweh willing. Um, I, I'd like to say something real quick about healing and illness. Yeah, you know, God has laid down laws for us to live by, and. Even if we're ignorant of us, and many of us today are ignorant of those laws, that's the way we're raised, and fortunately, we learn about those on time to do something about it. If we don't, we could already be sick and not even know it. And um, Cheryl and Matt have found Christianity and have found this new purpose in life with the Fords, and they found it rather recently and, um, you know, the typical bad habits that we eat the world, the eating of, uh, of mass-produced foods and mass-produced and, and empty and actually foods mental to our health, and, and that's the food that most Americans eat, and, and the smoking of cigarettes and the drinking of soda, and, and all of those that lead to a healthy situation yeah, you know, sometimes when we find the truth, and even if we turn to it wholeheartedly, it's already too late. And there's no conflict between Yahweh's creation and Yahweh's law. Um, if we live by his laws, we hope not to get sick and pray that if he does, um, yeah, you know, that if he does let us slip into vile, that we will, he will heal it. And, and faith works miracles. It really does. But we can only get those miracles if we've been living according to his will. And um, if we haven't been living according to his will, if smoking and drinking and, and, and eating all these that are really non-foods, I mean, most of the things on the supermarket shelves aren't really even food. Half of them are poison, and we're pumping those into our bodies daily for 30, 40, 50 years, and no... We can't expect miracles, and we're going to get sick doing that. Some of us are going to be fortunate and escape that, but but it's that, that's the way it is. With to um, if we expect his healing, we have to return to his. And, and I really pray that Cheryl does that. She she's um, 
on our way home tonight. I'm still at Clipster's house. I spent four days this week at, at the home of ProThink, Mike Delaney with his wife and children, and, and believe it or not, every relaxing time. Nobody would believe me, Mike's kids like that, but it was a, it was a wonderful time. I will be home. Um, I will be leaving Clifton Sunday, and I will stop at Matthew for at least one day on my way. And, and to, next week, I'll be doing my programs, God willing, home. But this is um, Clifton Emma Heiser's home tonight. And, and to, I, before I left for Mike Delaney's house last, I had offered Clifton, you know, to choose out one of his papers that he wanted to cover. And I think he picked a very appropriate one. Tonight we're going to discuss one of and going to present one of Clifton's first two seed line papers and it's titled right it, it's I'm sorry, it's redundantly titled The Seed Line Controversy War in Identity. And I'm going to introduce Clifton now and maybe he'll tell us a little why he wrote this paper and, and what purpose he served. Um, like, like Bill said, this is written sometime, and I was in papers, uh, I was getting a, a lot of bad information from different places, and, um, uh, so, Papers. I was doing research, so I called it. I put them all. I put several papers together that I had had uh, little that I had done on different subjects, and I called it uh, research papers um, proving the two seed lines seduction of Eve, and. Um, uh, I was uh, I had different people uh, writing me. I, I wasn't online at the time, and uh, requesting um, uh, that booklet. And I began to realize that um, what I needed to do, if I could uh, reduce it down to one brochure. Um, I thought it would um, be something a person could hand out. Uh, that way they didn't have to buy a little booklet and uh, I could do the um, uh, brochures um, at a pretty uh, reasonable rate. So I had to uh, experiment around with my word processor for quite a while. I um, I used a legal sheet, and I had to get the margins and the uh, columns all lined up so when you folded it up, the fold would be in a margin, uh, and uh, in, uh, in the margin between two columns. And uh, that took quite a bit of uh, experimenting around till I was satisfied with that. And... Um, so after I after I got that kind of worked out, I, I I put together the text on it, and so there was a lot of um, cutting and pasting from this other uh, book that I had put together, 
and um, <clears throat> a lot of uh, a lot of identity, uh, Israel identity had had rejected uh, the doctrine of two seed line, and there was a lot of people out there just just. Uh, in fact, uh, for uh, just a minor few people, uh, it, it, it had been uh, practically cast out of the two seed line, uh, or not the two seed line, but the Israel identity uh, message. So I'll, I'll start reading it now. And of course, the title, I, I wanted to make it kind of strong. So I, I called a title it uh, the Great Two Seed Line controversy war and identity i wanted there be to be there i wanted that there should be no mistake that this was a war that was going on okay now reading from the text today there is an all-out war of words being waged in the circles of israel identity parties on both sides of the issue have drawn a line in the sand and ideological clinched fists are being shaken from indignant participants. Each participant, in his own way, is trying his best, or maybe his worst, uh, in the most uh, brutal manner, to draw ideological blood. They are aiming their rhetorical, cutting words for no less than the proverbial juggler vein, of their opponents in order to kill their uh, what they would consider damning heretical influence. <clears throat> Both sides uh, go to long and contentious links in an attempt to prove uh, their undying convictions on the, the subject. To those opposing adherents, there is no uh, common middle ground for compromise, uh, nor, uh, nor can there ever be any. This is a matter where one is either totally correct or totally wrong. No gray middle areas. Many may not have a complete knowledge of this subject, but will find themselves eventually on one side of the fence or the other. If one tries to straddle the fence on this subject, he will only find himself with his pants torn and exposed in the most unseemly location. Like all controversies, there is usually a right and wrong side to consider. We will be considering who is wrong on this greatest of all issues shortly. The concept of two seed line is that Satan once ruled uh, to a high degree in the dimensions of Yahweh in past ages, not being satisfied with his high position, he tried to usurp the position of Yahweh himself. Satan, the shining one, uh, convinced one third of Yahweh's angels to join him in his rebellion. This rebellion is recorded in Revelation 12, 7 
verses 7 through 9. And there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels, and prevailed not. Neither was their place found for any more in heaven. Found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil. And I have uh, the great dragon, I have the underline, uh, the devil underline, and that underline, because uh, uh, that that would be the... Um, the, the, the article would uh, the indicate. article uh, uh, of course that would be uh, the Greek in the New Testament uh, so we got uh, uh, well, well we the got, article would indicate that the nouns are of substantive meaning that they are pointing to a particular entity yeah uh, <laughs> a building plan on uh, I'm glad he's doing it though and and I, I underlined uh, that that or the uh, so and reading verse nine again and the great dragon was cast out that old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceived the whole world he was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him and Bill's got something he wants to say. Well, well, we should discuss the nature of Satan and, and what it means today and what it was then. It, it's very clear in Revelation 12, 9, that like every rebellion, it had a leader. That There's no doubt that there was a leader to the rebellion. And, and he's described in Revelation chapter 12 as being a dragon and, and that he enlisted a third of the angels to join him in this rebellion. Now, now, I don't think it had to be, it, it can be depicted this way, but it wasn't necessarily an overt rebellion. It could have been a subtle rebellion and, and just a violation of God's laws. And that caused his being cast out of what we want to consider to be heaven, right? And, and um, that these angels that were cast out, being cast out, I don't think we could, what we need to perceive this as being a bunch of angels with wings thrown out of space onto the earth, right? Uh, th there were possibilities as to what heaven could mean here. It could be literally space as we know it. It could be another dimension as we perceive dimensions, dimensions of existence, or it could be simply an allegory for the kingdom of God on earth and that, you know, heaven is always, it is very often a term used to describe the kingdom of God on earth, of God's people on earth, and, and life under the ideal law of God. And, and that's often described as heaven in, in scripture and in prophecy. So I don't think we necessarily have to see this as a, a, a battle with UFOs or, or angels with wings falling to, to earth. It's allegory, and, and it's a prophetic description, and it could mean a lot of different things. And I don't think it really matters that we understand what it means, and, and I don't even think it should be argued about. All we have to understand was that there was a race that was cast out 
of, of the, the God's perfect government because of their rebellion against God. And, and that had to happen before Adam was put here. And that had to happen because before Adam was put here because this is talking about that old serpent who is already in the garden, and, and we'll be talking about this more later, who's already in the garden when Adam was put here. That now Christ said in Luke chapter 10, I saw, past tense, I saw Satan fall like lightning, and that doesn't mean he fell from space. That could just be allegorically spoken as well. And um, if I ever find out that Satan fought, fell from space, it wouldn't upset me. But we don't have to see it that way because it's allegorical language. Christ talks about the Satan that he saw fall like lightning from heaven. And then and, and that's in Luke 10, 18. And then he immediately connects that Satan to the idea of both evil spirits and serpents and scorpions. And, 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 and those words, those terms are allegorical for the people, certain people in Palestine during his own time. So we see that Satan, the dragon, the serpents, the scorpions, they're all here in the world at the time of Christ. Herod could, the, the dragon which stood before the virgin to kill the Christ child could only be Herod the Edomite. So we see a real person representing the idea of the dragon, the great red dragon. And, and Herod happened to be an Edomite who descended from, as we believe in two seed line, those fallen angels. If you will notice very carefully, if you have a King James Version with a good center reference, um, uh, he could compare the old, older um, world, south, uh, southwestern, or the newer uh, Zondervan classic. That's uh, names of two different Bibles. This verse makes you to this ver, ver this verse takes you to Genesis three. Um, verse 1 and verse 4. So there is no doubt here who the serpent of Genesis is. If you don't understand this connection uh, with the above uh, quoted passage and the serpent of Genesis 3, 1 and 4, you will have totally lost sight of the entire story. Yeshua the Messiah, being Yahweh incarnate, speaks of this, Satan's fall, uh, in Luke 10.18. I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, uh, you know, quote, unquote, past tense, not something in the future. And that has to be a reference to the same thing that Revelation chapter 12 is referencing, the fall of the fallen angels. And if we go back to Genesis, we see the Nephilim, and the Nephilim means, the, the Hebrew word means the fallen ones. We have to connect the book of Revelation to the early chapters of, of the book of Genesis. We have to connect Christ's words in Luke chapter 10 
and 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 in Revelation chapter 12 and and in several other places in scripture right back to the early chapters of Genesis the concept of two sea line further uh, predicates that when Satan fell with the rest of the satanic beings they left the dimension of the spirit and entered the dimension of the phys physical as men uh, Jude 6 quote and the angels which kept not their first state but left their own habitation or principality uh, uh, King James Version center, center reference he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Uh, and then my own comment, uh, no longer uh, having access to Yahweh's dimension. We know these fallen angels were living at the time of Yahshua as men, as the center reference in the KJV uh, takes us to John 8:44, where Yeshua says to the quote Jews unquote, and then uh, I'll quote the verse quote Ye are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer uh, from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there was no truth in him. Now, Luke chapter 11 is a perfect second witness to that. In Luke chapter 11, I think it starts around verse 47, we see Christ tell many of the people, many of the Pharisees and, and Sadducees in the temple and, and lawyers, he tells them that all the blood, the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, that their race shall be held responsible for that. Now, the word in the King James, of course, is generation, but the word genos means race. And, and speaking of their fathers from the time of Abel all the way to Zechariah, the word can't be interpreted generation. It must be interpreted race because you're talking about many, many generations of the same people, their fathers. Their fathers are responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, that's very good from A to Z, and that makes a lot more sense in English than it did in Greek because Z is, is not the last letter of the alphabet in Greek. It's about the seventh. They're responsible for the blood of all the prophets from Abel. Only the children of Cain, only the race of Cain could possibly be responsible for the blood of Abel. Nobody else could be responsible for that blood. And that is a perfect second witness to the words of Christ and our interpretation of John 8:44. Another cross-reference of the KJV on Jude 6 is 2 Peter 2:4. Quote, For if you always spare not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains, earthbound and that you know that's my own comment there of darkness uh to be re, uh, reserved unto judgment that now in the book of enoch clifton what we see that the fallen angels went out and mixed their seed with every kind and and it explicitly states that they mixed their seed 
with all different kinds of animals. Now, what could be those chains of darkness? Could that be the origin of the non-white races from the mixing that was perpetrated by the fallen angels? Because the non-white races are not accounted for in the creation of Genesis. And that could very well, and, and we did a program on that last year. That could very well be those chains of darkness. It could be an allegory for that very thing. And if that's the case, then they are certainly reserved for judgment. Because every plant that Yahweh didn't plant is going to be rooted up. That the fallen angels had the power to change themselves into the form of men is recorded in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, uh, Testament of Reuben, uh, 2, uh, verses 18 and 19, page 223, quote, For thus they, uh, the women, uh, allured the watchers, fallen angels, who were before the flood, for as those continually uh, beheld them, they lusted after them, and they conceived the act in their mind, for they changed themselves into the shape of men and appeared to them when they were uh, possibly not, that's my words, with their husbands. And the, uh, and the women... And the woman lusted in their women that is women lusted in their minds after their forms gave birth to giants uh, for the watchers appeared to them as reaching even unto heaven unquote. Well, well, the um, I don't really consider the testament of Reuben to be canonical, and and it shouldn't be considered to be canonical. However. It was definitely written in, in the um, the centuries, the, the two centuries leading up to Christ. It's almost certainly from the second century B.C., and, and that's determined by many scholars. And, and the um, while, while the Testament of Reuben may not be canonical, it definitely shows it, it, the beliefs of some pre-Christians, some pre-Christian Hebrews of the time and, and how they interpreted the Genesis events. Likewise, we have the same interpretation of those Genesis events in the book of Enoch. And I'll read from 1 Enoch chapter 6 verses 1 and 2. And this is what Jude was referring to. These are the chapters of Enoch that Jude the apostle and that Peter the apostle we're quoting from and alluding to in their epistles. And this is from 1 Enoch chapter 6 where it says, And it came to pass when the children of men had multiplied that in those days were born unto them beautiful and comely daughters. And the angels, the children of heaven, saw and lusted after them and said to one another, Come, let us choose us wise from among the children of men and beget us children. Uh with this exceptionally outstanding passage, uh, and uh, and I'm going back now to uh, my uh, brochure or, or the article that I I wrote uh, on this, um, 
and uh, the passage I'm talking about is is the one that I read, not what uh, Bill read. The Testament of Reuben. Yeah, the, the Testament of Reuben uh, is what I read there. So with this exceptionally outstanding passage, uh, in other words, the Testament of Reuben, we can more wholly comprehend what it means in Jude 6, the uh, the fallen, quote, angels which kept not their first estate, unquote. Uh, this passage also serves as a paradigm or model after the fact of what happened previously involving the satanic seduction of Eve in the Garden of Eden. We are now more aware of the war which resulted in the fallen angels becoming earthbound or, quote, chained, unquote, which is an essential element uh, in the concept of two-seed-line doctrine. Now, now that we know who the players are, let's proceed with the narrative which resulted in the uh, two seeds of Genesis 3.15. Now, now, let me say that simply because this event that's recorded in Genesis chapter 6 is so distinct in our Bibles, that does not mean, and, and is pointed out by Enoch and, and, and um, many other writers, that does not mean that a similar event did not occur in Genesis chapter 3. The fallen angels left their church, first estate, the fallen angels were also that old serpent of the garden. As Revelation chapter 12 explicitly states, the fallen angels probably committed many crimes. It's not recorded in the Bible at all, as we know the Bible, that the, the fallen angels went and mixed their seed with all sorts of, of animals, but that's what's recorded in the Enoch literature, which Jude and Peter quoted from and alluded to, and, and Paul also alluded to and quoted from it, and, and that can be established, the, the, um, the crimes of these fallen angels who left their first estate were actually very many. They mixed their seed with other races, that they seduced Eve, they seduced the women in Genesis chapter 6, and, and gave birth to giants, that their crimes are, are, are um, ongoing to this day. Their, their crimes, simply because Genesis 6 is pointed out explicitly, are not limited to Genesis chapter 6. Um, the next se uh, section of my brochure, or, or the article that I wrote, uh, the heading, uh, the subheading is Mental and Physical uh, Satan's seduction of Eve. Uh, it is simply amazing the various unreasonable, preposterous, nonsensical, and twisted arguments that opponents of 2C line teaching advance to secure their groundless, unfounded, and insecure positions. I will be getting uh, two examples of some of them shortly. After we briefly walk carefully step by step through the fundamental story, it starts in Genesis 
2 uh, verses 16 and 17 where Yahweh instructs Adam before the creation of Eve um, and, and that's important is that this takes place before the creation of Eve it starts with Genesis uh, 2 verses 6 uh, 6 oh wait, I, I, I'm reading rereading a line you see there are already there uh, you see there was already a danger that Adam might mess up by eating of the forbidden fruit even before Eve arrived on the scene. The important thing to see here is Yahweh had a very important reason for instructing Adam at this time, for there were a lot of women, uh, unlike his kind, uh, pre-Adamites, running around the garden uh, to excite his natural manly instincts. Uh, Verse, uh, you know, uh, uh, I I will quote here. Uh, it it would be the sixteenth uh, and seventeenth uh, verses. Quote, and Yahweh commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Pre-Adamites. Just because they were pre-Adamites, that doesn't mean that Yahweh created them. We've already seen in the Enoch literature that the fallen angels went and they mixed their seed with every kind. That the fallen angels were here on earth and they were perverting and corrupting the original creation of God. So simply because... There were other races of men, as we perceive races of men today, here on earth. That doesn't necessarily mean that God created those other races. In, in fact, the Genesis account states that um, God created beasts and he created man. He created Adam. And, and man is only Adam and there's only one man made in his image. Now, there are anthropoids or hominids, two-legged beasts in his creation, and they're monkeys and apes and gorillas and orangutans. That There's no guarantee. We have no sure way of knowing that these Negroes and these Orientals and these, these Dravidian Indians that we see today, these squat monsters from South America, we have no sure way of knowing that they're a part of God's original creation. And we are told that there are only two types of people in the end. There are only sheep and there are goats. And all the goats go into the lake of fire because every branch that Yahweh did not plant shall be rooted up and destroyed. The, the um, trees as people, we've, all, we, we've, often, um, we've often cited... Isaiah chapter 31, I believe it is, where it says that the Assyrian is the tallest tree of the garden and all the trees of the garden bowed to him. And there we see that the garden is representative of the race of God on earth. The race of, of the Adamic man on earth is what the garden is. And, and we're going to discuss this a little later. Clifton pointed out a good verse to me this afternoon that, that shows that trees are not people, and it's one I hadn't considered in the past. I probably just skipped over it 
because I know that often in scripture, trees are allegorically used for people as they are in Genesis chapter three. And, and here's Isaiah 55, 12, for ye shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. And that's representative of all of the other Adamic nations, just like it is in Ezekiel chapter 31, I believe it is. Uh, getting back to my um, article again, the rest of chapter 2 concerns itself with the creation of Eve uh, and, quote, helpmate, uh, helpmeet, I guess you should say, um, unquote, for Adam, who was uh, genetically the same as he was, or as uh, Genesis 2.23 expresses it, and Quote, and Adam said, this is now bone of my bones, bones, that's plural, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Uh, and my, I, I inserted the same DNA and continuing quoting, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You will notice a good cross-reference system of the KJV as stated before gives Ephesians uh, 5.30 on this verse and says, quote, For we are members of his Yeshua's, and I inserted Yeshua's there, body uh, uh, of his flesh and of his bones. In other words, we're the same race as Yeshua was. Uh, to further establish uh, the setting or background surrounding the story, it will be necessary to consider Genesis uh, 2, verses 8 and 9, quote, And Yahweh Almighty planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground made Yahweh Almighty to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Three kinds of trees in all. Well, well, right. It says, and out of the ground, Yahweh made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also. So the tree of life is also in the midst of the garden. And the tree of life isn't growing out of the ground. It's in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil isn't growing out of the ground. It's in the midst of the garden. The garden is representative. And I would say that the garden, just like in Ezekiel chapter 31, where we see that the, the, um, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon with fair branches, and his height was exalted above all the trees of the field. While the Assyrian had become the most powerful nation amongst the Genesis 10 Adamic nations. And that same chapter in Ezekiel refers to that as the Garden of God. For instance, in verse 8, where it says, The cedars in the Garden of God could not hide from him. The fir trees were not like his bows. And the chestnut trees were not like his branches, 
nor any tree in the garden of God was like unto him in his beauty. All of those trees in that Ezekiel 31.8 are the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations. And they are being compared to the Assyrian who has become, at this time when Ezekiel wrote, the most powerful of all of these nations. Now here, God plants a garden, and, and there's two types of tree, there's three types of trees in it. First, you have the trees that are good for food. They are the trees of, of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. The trees that are good for food, every green tree which is good for food. And then we have the trees in the midst of the garden. And there are two of them, the tree of life. The tree of life is Christ. And the, and the tree of life, he is the vine, and his people are the branches. Together, they are the tree of life. That's how the book started, and that's how the book ends in Revelation chapter 22. And we have the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of knowledge of good and evil has to be that race of fallen angels. They, too, are a race, but they have experienced, they were at one time good, and in their rebellion from God, they experienced evil, and they've come to the knowledge of good and evil. And, and Clifton has examples that are forthcoming about angels, knowing the angels of God being familiar already with good and evil. Now, now the, the garden, I see the garden as a, a, an allegory for a civilization that Adam was to cultivate. Clifton, we had a conversation about that this afternoon, that the words cult and culture and cultivate were all connected. Um, getting back to my article now, I'll, I'll begin reading again. We have to look for something here that has knowledge of good and evil. This knowing good and evil is the earmark of angels. Therefore, this tree that has the knowledge of good and evil must be an angel uh, of some kind. In Revelation 12:9. If rather, if if Revelation 12:9 is true, he is the original organizer of the rebellion in heaven, the old serpent himself. For proof that angels have the knowledge of good and evil, I will quote uh, from Second Samuel, uh, 14, verse uh, 17. Quote: Then thine handmaid uh, said. The word of my master, the king, shall now uh, be comfortable, for as an angel of Elohim, uh, so is my lord the king to discern good and bad. Therefore, Yahweh will be with thee. Uh, then I had I in parentheses, um, check also... Um, Verse 20 and uh, um, chapter uh, 19, verse 27. You know, it says in Genesis 3.22, after the fall of Adam and after Yahweh pronounced the, the punishments, it says, and, and Yahweh God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. And we see right there that Adam came to know good and evil through his through, through his sin, right? 
getting back to my article, then I have another another uh, sub subheading. Uh, then enters the serpent. Now that we understand that the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the serpent are the same thing, we are in a better position to understand who the players of this episode are. Let's uh, see what Genesis 3 uh, verses 1 through 3 say. Quote, Now the serpent was more sub subtle uh, than any beast of the field which Yahweh Almighty had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath Yahweh said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Uh, that has a question mark. Uh, uh, so that was a question. Let me read it over. Uh, this is um, the serpent saying to Eve, you know, Yea, hath you always said, ye, are not, uh, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Uh, and the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, Yahweh Almighty hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Um, you will notice uh, the KJV's center reference uh, very uh, car carefully. You will find uh, the serpent of Genesis 3.1 is the same serpent of Revelation 12.9 uh, that organized the rebellion against Yahweh. If you will notice again, the KJV center reference indicates the serpent of Genesis 3.1 is the same serpent of uh, 2 Corinthians 11.3, which um, reads thusly, quote, but I, fear lest I, but I fear lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve uh, through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Yahshua. Well, well, right. Eve, Eve was deceived, and then she committed a sin. If your your mind can be deceived, if you commit no sin, if you commit no act, then there's no sin. And, and Clifton, you pointed this out in another paper many years ago that you wrote. I, I think it's in one of your special notices on Two C Line, where James chapter one verses fourteen through fifteen. Um, describe the stages of sin, but each is tried by his own desires. Now we see in Genesis chapter 3 that Eve looked at the serpent, at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and began to desire it. She began to covet it. When she was deceived, when she was seduced by the serpent, she saw that the tree was good for food. She was tried by her own desire. And James goes on to say, being drawn out and enticed. Well, there's no sin if Eve moves on. But then James says in verse 15, then the desire giving, the desire conceiving gives birth to sin, and the sin being accomplished brings forth death. And there was absolutely an act 
because Adam and Eve were punished. If there's no transgression, there's no punishment. Even though there are evil thoughts, evil thoughts are not punished in the law of God. Only evil deeds are punished in the laws of God. You have to have an act in order to have a transgression. What Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, And Adam was not deceived, meaning that Adam sinned purposefully. But the woman had been thoroughly beguiled or thoroughly seduced or thoroughly deceived when the transgression occurred. There was definitely an act and not a thought crime. Yahweh does not punish thought crimes. He only punishes wicked deeds. Um, getting back to um, uh, my article then, um, right away the opponents of two senile doctrine are going to moan and groan and say something like this, quote, this passage is speaking of mental seduction only, unquote. Let's see if this uh, supposition is true. Uh, remember, this was the warning, quote, of the uh, fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Yahweh hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now I have a subheading again, uh, which, uh, which uh, I state, eat and touch have sexual connotations. Uh, what was it that Eve did eat, and what did Eve touch? The word eat in the Hebrew is 398, a call, uh, to eat, also to lay with. To prove that many, many times this is so, we will use some examples from Scripture. Uh, first, we will use a supporting Scripture. Proverbs 30, uh, verse 20, quote, Such is the way of an adulterous woman. She eateth and wipeth her mouth and saith, uh, I have done no wickedness. Now, before I go on reading from my article, I'll say, She did not wipe the mouth on her face. She wiped her vagina. Uh, again, this uh, the edith here is allegorical uh the next scripture i i, I picked up here proverbs 9:17 stolen waters are sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant now the eaten is in uh is in italics uh but the translators understood uh, the situation well enough that they inserted, uh, uh, in, in this case, you know, some of the things they insert is not so good, but uh, they had pretty good reason for inserting eat, eaten here, although it's not in the Hebrew. Uh, then the next is uh, Numbers uh, 25.2, quote, And they called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods, and the people did eat and bowed down to their gods. 
Now, I got a real good reference from uh, the White uh, Whitecliff uh, uh, Bible commentary on this. So I'll, I'll, I'll start reading again. With this last verse of Numbers 25-2, the Whitecliff Bible commentary has this to say uh, on page 145, quote, They called the people unto the sacrifices of their gods. The subject they is feminine, uh, referring to the daughters of Moab, with whom the men of Israel committed fornication. Balak with Balaam's advice, unquote. Uh, that, that's, a, you know, I consider that a very good comment from, you know, you don't get a lot of comments uh, from some of the commentaries that are very good, but I consider that a very good one. Getting back here again, you can plainly see the word, quote, eat, unquote, uh, 398, a call in the Hebrew in each of the above verses means sexual intercourse, which is which also means which it also means in Genesis 3 3 where Eve is confronted by Satan. The scripture passage we are scrutinizing is quote, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Not only does the word eat sometimes have sexual connotations, but also the word touch, which is Number 5060, Naga, Naga, I think that is, uh, to touch. Um, also, to have sexual intercourse, we will use the following scripture to support this uh, Genesis 26, uh, 10 and 11. Quote, And Abimelech said, What is this thou hast done unto us? One of the people might have lain, uh, and uh, of course they spelled it in the King James Version, L-I-E-N, but the, uh, it means L-A-I-N in our English, with thy wife. Uh, let me read that again. And Amalek said, what is this that thou hast done unto this? Thus, one of the people might have lain with thy uh, wife, and thou shouldest uh, have brought guiltiness upon us. And Abimelech uh, uh, charged all his people, saying, He that touches this man or his wife shall surely put, put to death. Then we have Genesis uh, 20, verse 6. And Yahweh Almighty said unto uh, to him in the dream, and I think that's Abimelech again, Yea, I knew that thou uh, didst this in the integrity of thy heart, for I also withheld thee from sinning against me, therefore suffered I not to touch her. Well, is he just going to touch her uh, uh, on the cheek or something like that? Uh, uh, and it speaks of laying with? Uh, so we know what kind of... of uh, uh, thing it's referring to here, and, and so we're beginning to see what touch means. Uh, Genesis, uh, another another verse that uh, reinforces this is Genesis 26 uh, verses uh, 28 and 29. Quote: 
let there now be an oath between us. Now, that's between Abimelech and, uh, let's see, who was it? Uh, Isaac. Isaac, yeah. Uh, let there be now an oath between us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee. That thou will do no, uh, that thou will do us no hurt, as we have not touched thee, meaning Rebecca. <coughs> Go ahead and read your bill. And, and as we have done unto thee nothing but good, and have sent thee away in peace. <coughs> and, and Proverbs six twenty nine. <coughs> sorry, Clifton's coughing, coughing a little there. Proverbs 6.29 says, So he that goes into his neighbor's wife, whosoever touches her shall not be innocent. And we see that eat and touch are both euphemisms for sexual relations. And there's no doubt in Scripture. The word touch of Genesis 3.3 is the same word, Strong's Dictionary, Hebrew Dictionary number 5060, as the word touch, touched, or toucheth, and these references which Clifton has quoted in his paper. Therefore, both the words eat and touch have sexual connotations. And, and I would say they had sexual connotations as euphemisms, regardless of what the opponents of two seed line doctrine are touting. And, and I've seen many people myself that, that have denied that the words eat and touch can euphemistically refer to sexual relations, and and their denial of that is contrary to all to, contrary to all common sense and and contrary to many scriptures. Back to Clifton. With these references, we can be safe to conclude that Eve had a sexual encounter with the serpent in the garden. Let the opponents of two seed line doctrine throw up their hands in horror and consternation, all they desire to. It will not change scriptural facts. Genesis 3.13 says, And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. It is absurd to suggest that Eve was beguiled into eating ordinary food when Yahweh had already approved of eating from garden variety fruit trees. Genesis 1.29 now, now I have some discussion, and, and I would like to... um. To magnify Clifton's arguments concerning eat and touch, as I have recently outlined in, in one of the presentations for one of my own papers, Shemitic Idioms and Genesis chapter 3. And, and in that paper, I did not seek to duplicate what Clifton had done in some of his papers already on these words eat and touch, so I didn't go into them at great length. However, that paper points out the language which refers to a sexual awakening as described in contemporary literature in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And when I say contemporary literature, I mean that the Epic of Gilgamesh was extant throughout Mesopotamia at the time that Moses wrote Genesis. And since the, the writers of the Epic of Gilgamesh spoke a similar language, a very similar language to the, the, um, the Hebrew, the, since they were, they, they were speaking um, or writing in Sumerian and Akkadian and Aramaic and, and similar dialects, languages which were related to Hebrew, 
we see that they may well have used many of the same idioms. They shared a very common culture. And in the epic of Gilgamesh, we see language that de what was that, that described events here in, in which were very similar to the events of Genesis chapter 3. And I'll repeat Genesis 3, 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And now I have just two short passages from the Epic of Gilgamesh. And, and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the, the great um, giant Enkidu, who is living in the woods with the animals and, and the hunter and driving off all of the hunters in protection of the animals. Well, the hunters go to Gilgamesh, who, who is a, a local king, and, and Gilgamesh suggests that the hunters seduce the giant Enkidu. And, and, and the hunter gets a whore from the city and brings the whore or the prostitute or the harlot or whatever you want to call her. He brings the harlot out to the giant Enkidu and sends her to seduce the giant. And Gilgamesh is quoted as saying, Go, my hunter, take with thee a harlot lass. When he, meaning Enkidu, the giant, waters the beasts at the watering place, she shall pull off her clothing, laying bare her ripeness. So we see that the harlot, her naked body is described as ripeness, just like the tree in Genesis was described as being good for food. Now, in part four of the Epic of Gilgamesh, in lines 31, 34, and 35 of the same tablet, after Enkidu was seduced and cohabited with the harlot, we read, but now he, meaning Enkidu, had wisdom, broader understanding. So we see that the woman saw the tree was good for food and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. And then in verses, in lines 34 and 35, the harlot says to him, to Enkidu, thou art wise, Enkidu art become like a god. And this is language very similar to the language we see in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3.22, where Yahweh says, and the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. We see very similar language used in Genesis chapter 3 in the Epic of Gilgamesh to describe sexual awakening. And we see in, 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 in Genesis chapter 3, as Clifton points out here, that those words, eat and touch, are also euphemisms for sexual relations. Um, getting back to my article now, I, I have another subtitle. And uh, sort of disgustingly, I, uh, it, it may seem strange to you, but this is, uh, I have trees, question mark, or trees, question mark, or trees, question mark. 
and I was so disgusted with some of the uh, anti-seed liners or non-seed non liners or whatever you want to call them that that's that's why I uh, use that title. Um, maybe you're maybe you can feel some of the some of my disgust uh, uh, just uh, by me reading that. The opponents of two scene line doctrine are always swift to counter with the argument, quote, if Adam and Eve could eat of all of the trees of the garden, that would uh, mean they could have sexual intercourse with anyone whom they desired. If, if uh, trees represent humans in one place, it would have to represent humans in all other places. And this would uh, be highly immoral, unquote. This is entirely a false assumption because sometimes the Hebrew is speaking of actual wooden trees and at other times it is speaking of idiomatic trees. I will refer to uh, the Wilson's Old Testament word studies by William Wilson, uh, a Hebrew reference book, page... Um, 453 under the heading, quote, trees, uh, colon, one, uh, ellipses, strong, stout, mighty trees, uh, two, ellipses, a tamarisk, uh, flowering, uh, M-Y-R-I-C-M, uh, um, Marica. Marissa, or a tamarisk, or in ornamentals, uh, evidently a uh, comment by uh, L-I-N-N, whoever that is. Then perhaps any large tree and collectively trees, a wood, a grove, three ellipses, a tree, often collectively trees, uh, figuratively represent men. Uh, 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 repeat that figuratively. Trees represent mean men. Green trees as righteous, dry trees as wicked. Ezekiel twenty forty seven and uh, seventeen twenty four. All the trees of the field, all men, the high tree, the lofty and powerful, the low tree, the weak and contemptible. Four ellipses plural, shady trees, unquote. For more information on, quote, men as trees walking, unquote, we see Mark um, 824. All this demonstrates if one wants to make a bona fide argument, one should know what one is talking about. If this passage meant Adam and Eve could have sexual relations with anyone in the garden, uh, it would have said all the proverbial beast or trees of the field. If one uh, cannot separate the literal language from the idiolanguage of the scripture, of the one? The idiomatic language. The idiomatic language of the scripture, right. Uh, one uh, simply cannot understand the Bible, and in such a case, it might be prudent uh, not to have an opinion. 
I'll, I'll speak a little bit on George Lampsa. He does uh, have some idioms uh, uh, for uh, you know uh, what he's worth. Uh, George M. Lampsa, an uh, expert on uh, bid- uh, biblical idioms, in his idioms of the Bible explains says this of the following uh, uh, garden. Uh, Genesis 28, metaphorically, a wife, a family, tree uh, of life in the midst of the garden, Genesis 2.9, sex, posterity, progeny. Uh, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, Genesis 2.9, moral law, the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life, Genesis 2.9, eternal life. Uh, the tree of good and evil, Genesis 2.17, uh, metaphorically uh, sexual relationship. You, you know, George Lanza did good in, in a lot of areas with idioms in the Bible, but we we have to be a little careful with them because George Lanza would like us to believe that Arabs are Assyrians, and that's simply not true. The Assyrians would have originally been as white as any Europeans are today. But the um, that this is interesting, and, and I'll make a few impromptu remarks. That this is interesting because in Genesis two eight we see that a, a tree is a wife or a family, a, and we see that Adam was set in the garden to cultivate the tree of life, to to cultivate the garden of God, which was the Adamic family. The tree of life in the midst of the garden, and and um, Lambs says that that could mean sex, posterity, or progeny, and the tree of life is the posterity of Christ. The tree of life, I am the vine, you are the branches. Christ described himself as the root and the branch of Jesse, meaning that he was the beginning of the Adamic race when he, as Yahweh, created Adam. He also came as one of the branches of that race when he manifested in, in, in the, um, that, you know, as Yahshua Christ in the body of an Adamic man. When he took the seed of Abraham upon himself, as Paul describes it, he became not only the root, he was already the root, he also became the branch, the, the branch of that same tree. And, and all Adamic people are branches and leaves and, and twigs on the tree of life. And, and in Genesis 3.22, we see that the, the, the first, in Genesis chapter C, 3, we see that the sin that caused Adam's fall was race mixing. And in Genesis 3.22, we see the admonition that unless the man grasps the tree of life, and lives forever. In other words, the way to our redemption is to cling to people of our own race. That's how we grasp the tree of life. And of course, the tree of life is Christ, but what are Christ's commandments? But not to commit fornication, not to commit adultery, and to love your brother. And doing those things, you are grasping the tree of life. Uh, getting back to my article again, 
and I have a subtitle, uh, Walking Through Genesis 4-1, Step by Step. And I'll say before I start here, um, I, I studied, uh, I did some research on Genesis 4-1 later on. Uh, I, I, I called it, I, I think I called it the problems with Genesis 4-1. I wrote a brochure, brochure on that. And um, so one, this was much before that time that I wrote uh, this article. And, and so if I had, if I had to rewrite, if I uh, had to do this, over, this particular article over again uh, about the uh, war and, uh, and uh, identity, I would write this portion probably a little differently, although much of it is uh, correct. Uh, we are now approaching uh, one of the most misunderstood single passages of Scripture in the entire Bible. If we approach it uh, too hurriedly, we will skip over it so quickly, we will never grasp its correct meaning. There there was a time when I was persuaded Genesis 3.15 was a mistranslation, but with more research, I found it to be highly accurate. Let's now allow the proper sequence of events. Um, it's all in the matter of putting events in their proper place. And um, uh, I, I didn't kind of, I didn't, quite keep on the subject I see uh, but I'm going to give uh, in, in a uh, made each one of these uh, uh, so that be so that they would be separated and then you'd see the difference and uh, uh, but I'll read them first. Now, this uh, starting with Genesis and, and on up to when when Seth was born, uh, this would be the general. Uh, and, and I got the first. The first one is the uh, uh, renovation of the earth. Uh, the next was the war in the heavens. Uh, the third was. Uh, Satan and one third of the angels cast bound to the earth. Uh, the next one was Adam and Eve formed in the image of Yahweh. The next one uh, is Satan seduced Eve and caused a first pregnancy. Then uh, Adam knew Eve and caused a second pregnancy. Uh, Cain is born of the first pregnancy. Abel is born of the second pregnancy. Cain murders Abel. Uh, uh, Adam knows Eve again for the third pregnancy. Seth is born as a substitute for Abel. Uh, I don't think I would make the first one uh, general re uh, uh, renovation of the earth. Uh, it may be uh, something that... Uh, I was under the influence of Compare at the time and, and may have um, kind of uh, believed uh, some of the things that he was saying. Well, well in either event, we had the creation of Genesis 1 first, 
and, and then somewhere in between the, the, the creation and, and the, fat, the time that the earth became habitable and the time Adam was created, we had the war in the heavens. It doesn't matter exactly when in between. It really doesn't. But before Adam was created, we had to have the war in the heavens. Right. Is that as much as you wanted to say on that? Or, mm -hmm. uh, okay. Uh, uh, once these events are placed in their proper order, all confusion uh, with Genesis 4.1 disappears. Once we learn that Adam knowing Eve had nothing to do with the, the birth of Cain, all becomes crystal clear. In most cases, uh, a logical conclusion that Cain was the son of Adam would uh, be a proper one. Uh, what am I saying here? Once we learn that Adam's Adam's knowing Eve had nothing to do with the birth of Cain, right? All becomes crystal clear. In most cases, the logical conclusion that Cain was the son of Adam uh, shouldn't that be improper one? Well, well, you said would be a proper one, but not with this verse. But not with this verse. The, okay. The conceiving in this verse had absolutely yeah. nothing to do with the bearing. I'm not a doing a very good understanding my own writing. Uh, the conceiving in this verse has absolutely nothing to do with the bearing. Uh, now let's uh, read this verse in a new light but uh in an old truth and adam knew eve and then i got a a, a, a long line on it there's a little space of time in there and she next bare cain and said i have gotten my first male child a man to present to yahweh as firstborn and she uh, uh again bare his half brother Abel, uh, Genesis 12, 13. Well, well, we see, well, well first, I, I have a couple of things to say. So, so basically, because I don't think you made it through your entire timeline, what we see the creation of Genesis chapter 1 leading up to the creation of Adam. And somewhere before that time, we have a war in the heavens, and Satan and a third of his angels were cast and bound to the earth. And we know that. Because when Adam is put in the garden, the tree of, of, of the knowledge of good and evil is already in the midst of the garden. So that had to happen, that that tree had to introduce itself into the garden. It had to happen before Adam was created. And, and, and we see that that is the point where a, a well, Satan or the serpent who's representative, a representative of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, seduces Eve. And, and, and Adam is caused to fall through that seduction of Eve and his acceptance of Eve. Now, now the, um, that there's no words in Hebrew or Greek for half-brother, are there? There are no words at all. Right. And we have all kinds of half-brothers in Scripture. That There are probably a thousand examples in Scripture with the patriarchs alone, with, there's 12. With the 12 patriarchs, that they're all half-brothers. Mm -hmm. Joseph is never called the half-brother of Judah. He's called the brother of Judah. The Hebrews and the Greeks didn't really, um, at, at that time, 
count half-brothers as anything but brothers or, or half-sisters as anything but sisters. But the, um, I, I wanted to say one, one other thing, but I think I'll hold on to it because we're going to get to it. And, and that's concerning the Targums, and we're going to get to it a little further on in this presentation, so I'll reserve it for now. Um, speaking of uh, the, the uh, where I, uh, the verse where I changed the words a little bit for better understanding and talked about the half brother and that and uh, uh, about uh, bearing Cain and so on uh, and and I go on in the next paragraph and I say I have changed the words a little to make the meaning eminently more evident and truth uh, truthworthy. Uh, once the true order of events of the verse is understood, it opens up uh, a whole new understanding of what is happening uh, in the world today. There is very um, substantial evidence that the, quote, Jews, unquote, of today are descended from Cain. We have no less than the word, words of Yeshua, the Messiah, himself concerning this one once it is understood uh, the quote jews unquote are devils walking around in shoe leather we can begin to see the uh, guiding hand of the great uh, world conspiracy and all the monstrous problems we are forced uh, we are faced with today Without an understanding of 2C line, we are at a detrimental loss to know who the enemy is. This knowledge of the, or the lack of it is the difference between the brightest day and the darkest night. Well, well you know, Peter says in, in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be alert. Your opponent, the devil, walks about as a roaring lion seeking someone to consume. And if we don't understand that the, the, that there's races of people, that there's one race in particular, but there are races of people who, and, and, and that's because that one race has diverged into many other races since the events in the garden. There are races of the people who are genetically disposed to opposition to God. If we don't understand who they are, we embrace those people by mistake, don't we? What we embrace those people, we embrace the devil and we don't even know what we're doing because we don't understand the book of Genesis. So, so we're in bed with the devil because we un don't understand Genesis. And, and our people are in bed with the devil all over the world. That they're in bed with the Jews, they're in bed with the Arabs, they're in bed with all these mixed races because we don't understand Genesis. Um. Getting back to my article, I have another subheading, uh, Genesis 3.15, Keystone of Scripture. One of the very first things those opposing, uh, uh, start over again. One of the very first things those opposed to a literal uh, saints, uh, Satan spawned physical seed line do is point out the fact uh the information can be found in the Talmud. This is a sneaky, deceptive method used by many to declare guilt by association. 
the question must be asked, is every single word in the Talmud false? This idea is built on the assumption that if it is found in the Talmud, it is automatically evil. For anyone who uses this approach, I would challenge them to prove every single word in the Talmud to be false. It cannot be done even though it is a collection of the most evil writings ever put uh, together. Only a weak mind would accept totally such a flimsy premise. Not only is there evidence found in the Talmud substantiating the seduction of Eve, but evidence can be found in the lost books of the Bible and the uh, forgotten books of Eden, the Protoevangelion, um, 10 verses uh, 1 through 10. Well, well, let me say that, that, that if everything found in the Talmud is false, then we have to discount the entire Bible, right? Well, we basically have to toss the entire Bible because there, there are many references to Bible stories found in the Talmud. And, and those references, even though the Talmud loves to twist the Bible, the references to those Bible stories are not false. That There were references, many um, good or true references to Bible stories found in the Talmud. And, and there were, there were many... Um, that there were many non-rabbinical works preserved or or, or, um, or or that we have knowledge of because of the writings in the Talmud. Even though the writings in the Talmud are generally very evil, that doesn't mean that everything in the Talmud that the Talmud refers to is false or is evil. We see in our newspapers today. We, we, see our, we know that our newspapers have agendas and that they are basically evil, but that doesn't mean that everything in the pages of our newspapers are false. That's ridiculous. Uh, are you ready? Clifton's about to quote from his paper where he quotes from the Protoevangelion of James and, and chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Okay, getting back to my article, I did uh, quote the Protoevangelion. Uh, um, okay, I'll read it now. And when her sixth month was come, Joseph returned from his building houses abroad, that be Mary's Joseph, uh, which was his trade, and entered into the house, found the virgin grown big. Then smiting upon his face, he said, With what face can I look up to the uh, Lord my God? For what shall I say concerning this young woman? For I received her a virgin out of the temple of the Lord my God, and have not preserved her such. Who has thus deceived me? Who has committed this evil in my house, uh, and seducing the virgin from me, uh, hath defiled her? Is not the history of Adam exactly accomplished in me? For in the very instance of his glory, the serpent came and found Eve alone and seduced her. Just after the same manner it has happened to me. Then Joseph, arising from the ground, called her and said, O th thou who hast been so much favored by God, why hast thou done this? Why hast thou thus debased thy soul? Who was uh, educated in the Holy of Holies and received thy food 
from the hand of angels. But she, with a flood of tears, replied, I am innocent, I have known no man. Unquote. Now, now, um, I don't view the Protoevangelion of James to be canonical. It, it's certainly, I've read the entire thing and, and found that it certainly is not canonical. However, just like the Testament of Reuben, the Protoevangelion of James is not a rabbinical work. It is not a Talmudic work. It's rather the work of, of very early Christians, probably of the second century, maybe of the third century. And it shows that those early Christians interpreted Genesis chapter 3 to be a story of sexual seduction. The Protoevangelion of James also shows that at least some early Christians believed that Adam found Eve pregnant by Cain, just as Joseph found Mary pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And that's very clear in this writing. Now, now of course, we can't prove this to be a canonical writing, but we can prove it to be a writing that is at least 1,800 years old. And it shows how early Christians felt about, uh, about Genesis chapter 3 when they compared the situation of Joseph directly to the situation of Adam. Now, and, and Clifton has brought this up many times, and, and we both have over the years. And, and this, I, I cited it last week when I talked about the, the, the problem with Genesis 6, 1 through 4, I believe, that with that paper. And, and this is from 4 Maccabees. And this appears in chapter 18 of 4 Maccabees in the edition found in Brenton Septuagint. And it's chapter 8 as it appears in the Lost Books of the Bible and, and the, the Forgotten Books of Eden. Now, um, for some reason, the edition of 4 Maccabees, which appears in the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, the chapter and verse divisions are very different from the, the version of 4 Maccabees that appears in the Septuagint. However, the translation is still very similar. And, and this, I'm going to quote from, from the Lost Books of the Bible and the Forgotten Books of Eden, from chapter 8 of 4 Maccabees. It's found towards the end of that, of, of that volume. And this is from verse 21. Now these are the words that the mother of the seven sons, the righteous woman, spake to her children. I was a pure maiden, and I strayed not from my father's house, and I kept guard over the rib that was built into Eve. No seducer of the desert, no deceiver in the field corrupted me, nor did the false beguiling serpent sully the purity of my maidenhood. I lived with my husband all the days of my youth, but when these my sons were grown up, their father died. Happy was he, for he lived a life blessed with children, and he never knew the pain of their loss. Who, and while he was yet with us, taught you the law and the prophets, he read to us of Abel, who was slain by Cain, and of Isaac, who was offered as a burnt offering, and of Joseph in the prison. And he spoke to us of Phineas, the zealous priest. And, and I know that Clifton is going to have some conversation for me about those entries in 4 Maccabees.
Well, where it talks about Phineas, that that's a um, well. Well, you could explain that, Clinton. Um, I I don't think that I have that. Uh, this is probably in this. Oh, okay. Well, well, it's, it's another paper. Well, 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 we had spoken this afternoon. We we discussed this, and and we found it very interesting that Phineas, the jealous zealous priest, that the father was teaching these seven children about race mixing, and, and not to commit fornication. And, and we see that the story of Joseph in the prison, yeah, you know, Joseph was in prison because he refused to commit fornication with the Pharaoh's wife. And, and even though the story of Isaac, who, who was offered as a burnt offering, has nothing to do with fornication, we see that the woman made a direct correlation between her not losing her virginity and Eve, who lost her virginity to the serpent. And, and we see that the... Um, that they correlate that with, with with the story of Abel who was slain by Cain and Joseph in prison and and Phineas the zealous priest that these early Christians because four Maccabees is not a Talmudic work four Maccabees is not found in the Talmud four Maccabees is not a rabbinical work four Maccabees was a work which was kept and and distributed by early Christians and we see that they also interpreted the Genesis 3 event as the sexual seduction of Eve by the so-called serpent. And, and we see that they also were teaching that they're, they're, um, through transmitting these writings, they were teaching Christians about fornication and race mixing and, and guarding against that. Yeah, that um, that passage. Uh, it, I consider Maccabees uh, history, and it's the history between the Testaments, and the Maccabees were um, the, the tribe of Levi. Yeah. And when the when the Israelites, or when the Judaites rather, came back from Babylon, they didn't have any they didn't have any kings to set up. Uh, there wasn't any that was eligible, so they went back to the old system of Levite rule like they had before they had kings. Right, well, right. They were under the rule of the Seleucids. That they were under the rule yeah, of they, the Yeah, they, 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 really, uh, they, they, they didn't really gain um, sovereignty. Well, well, they had they had thrown the yoke off of the Seleucids in in um, 155, 154 BC, mm -hmm. and because well, well, because of the prophecy that says that none of the sons of of Zedekiah would sit on the throne, the 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 Davidic throne was never restored, but the Maccabees, who, who were the high priests, that they were actually actually the Hasmoneans, that was their their family name, the Maccabees, who were the high priests. They came to be the de facto kings or rulers of the nation. Right. The Maccabees were Levites. Yes. That they were high priests. And, and so, uh, yeah, no, right. They were legitimate sons of Aaron. They were rulers, and they were uh, in, in the priesthood. Yes. And and this is history. It's not Talmud or anything else. Uh, uh, the many false claims. Uh, uh, it. You know, it, it's they're always saying that the Apophica is uninspired, and the only reason I can find it is supposed to be uninspired is some Jews decided that because it wasn't written in uh, Aramaic or Hebrew, 
uh, it's, it, it, it is inspired. So, uh, uh, well, well, then the Jews would consider the whole New Testament not inspired, wouldn't they? Well, that's, <laughs> I think that's why they took, uh, that was their excuse for taking that out of the uh, first King James Bible. It was in there for 27 years. Well, well the books of Maccabees are, are, are extremely important in understanding the intertestamental period. There is no doubt. And, and they're very incomplete in their nature. And, and Josephus is actually, he actually follows them where he can and, and um, fills in a lot of the history around them. But anyway, I'll get uh, on here with uh, my paper and I have another um, subheading. Some cite the spirit and the flesh as two seeds. This is one of the most ridiculous uh, misdirected applications of Holy Writ to come from any uh, one pretending to be inspired. It is so nonsensical, I will not affiliate the sacred name of Yahweh with it. Uh, if one believes the two seeds of Genesis 3.15 are such as um, this, are, are such, this is the way the verse, verse would have read. Uh, okay, if, if it's, if the flesh and the spirit are two seeds, that uh, Genesis 15 should read like this. Huh? And the Lord God said to Eve's flesh, because thou hast done this, thy flesh is cursed above all cattle and above all beasts and above every beast of the field. And thy flesh shall go upon its belly and thus shall uh, thy flesh eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between the flesh and the offspring of her spirit and the offspring of her spirit shall bruise the head of the offspring of her flesh and the offspring of her flesh will uh, bruise the heel of the offspring of her spirit. Now that's just how ridiculous they're making Genesis 3.15 to say that it represents two different... Uh, those two seeds represent the spirit and flesh. Among other very important details, the opponents of two seed line doctrine do not explain is why is Cain left totally out of the genealogy of Adam? Genesis uh, chapter 5 uh, gives the genealogy of Ad Adam to Shem. Uh, Ham and Japheth and Cain is not mentioned once. Why? Other genealogies in the Bible go to great detail and never leave out a son, especially a, a firstborn son. If you read Genesis 4-1 correctly, as depicted, it is not uh, there either. Why is Cain uh, totally left out? Cain's descendants are mentioned separately in Genesis uh, 4, 17 through 24, and it, doesn't, and it doesn't list Adam as the father of Cain. Why? The next place... Yeah, you know, real. I'm sorry to disturb you, but real quick, I want to address the idea that the flesh is seed and the spirit is seed, right? But because we clearly see Paul 
in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 44, speaking of the Adamic body and the resurrection. And Paul says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. In other words, the Adamic body has a natural body and a spiritual body. And Paul says, if there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. But it's only sown once. It's not sown twice. If the flesh and the, the spirit are two different seeds, well, then they both have to be sown. But that's not the case. We have one seed, and we're sown a natural body, according to Paul. And that happens in our conception. And we're raised a spiritual body. In other words, our spirit grows out of that same seed at our conception that our physical body grows out of. So there's only one seed for each Adamic being. And the flesh, the seed of the woman, is the Adamic race. And the seed of the serpent is the race of Satan. Uh, the next place we, uh, getting back to my article again, the next place we find Cain in the scriptures is Genesis 15:9, and we will have to read uh, verses 18 through 21. Quote: In the same day Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, uh, saying, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates, the Kenites the Canaanites, and the Cadamites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Raphians, and the Ammonites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Um, one of the, uh, these nations among the Canaanites are the Kenites, uh, 7017, which were descendants of Cain, being that Cain was of the satanic sea line, he would uh, uh, he would uh, inflict his uh, had to change pages or had to inflict his satanic blood among all these ten nations, and the Kenizzites were uh, and I'm wrong on this because. Um, uh, well, well, it's a popular error. Yeah. It's a popular mistake yeah. Yeah. that these Kenizzites were Edomites. Yeah. And, and a lot of people make that mistake. But in truth, the word Kenaz in Hebrew means hunter. It's a common word. And there could have been very easily been a tribe of people called Kenizzites before Esau was born. And they're not related to Kenaz who was one of Esau's sons, because Kenaz was only, it's only a word that means hunter. Oh, I said here, and the Kenazites uh, were Edomites. Uh, uh, I think some of the descendants of uh, um, Esau, there is a, a name, something like that in there. But it's just one of those, uh, I, was, I was early in, in my researches, and I made a mistake on that one. Uh, uh, and it's quite a bit of time space there. So uh, if I had to do over again, I, I would leave that out. In the Peaks commentary, you know, getting back to some good stuff maybe here. In the Peaks commentary uh, on the Bible, page 116, 
we find this about the mixed group of nations spoken of in Genesis 15, uh, verses 19 through 29. When the Israelites entered Canaan, they found there a very mixed uh, population, generally designated by the term Amorite or Canaanite, unquote. The Adam Clark Commentary on the Bible, abridged by Ralph Early, page 38, uh, has this to say, quote, The Kenites, here are ten nations mentioned, uh, though afterwards reckoned but seven. See Deuteronomy uh, 7.1, uh, Acts uh, 13.19. Probably some of them were, uh, some of them which existed in Ab Abram's time had been blended with others before the time of Moses so that seven only out of the ten remained. Well, well it's very possible that the Kenites, who were among the Canaanites in Genesis chapter 15, ha had mixed to the point where, where they became not worthy of, of mention as nations or as tribes of people in the book of Joshua later on. However, it's very clear from Scripture, and we see it in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, in 1 Samuel chapter 27, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, and in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, that there still are Kenites in Palestine. So they never disappeared, they never left, they never got wiped out, and, and there's still Kenites coming out of Palestine today. Um, getting back to my article, the next mention of the descendants of Cain is found in 1 Chronicles 2.5, quote, and the families of the scribes which dwelt at Jabez, the Terathites, the Shimeathites, and the Sukathites, these are the Kenites that came of Hemath, the father of the house of Rechab. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary, uh, editors uh, Charles F. Pfeiffer and Everett F. Harrison, has this to say on page 8, and this quote will cover Genesis 3, uh, verses 14 and 15. Cursed, and, and, and then they have uh, in parentheses, uh, uh, A-R-U-R, art thou. Uh, uh, just the hour is in parentheses, art, and then art thou. The Lord uh, singled out the originator an instigator of the temptation for spatial condemnation and degradation. From that moment, he must crawl in the dust, even feed on it. He would slither his way among, uh, along in disgrace, and hatred, hatred would be directed against him from all direction. Man would always regard him as a symbol of degradation, of the one who slandered God, uh, C.F. Isaiah 65:25, uh, he was to represent not merely the serpent race, uh, but the power of the evil kingdom. Uh, he long, as long as life continued, rather, as long as life continued, men would hate him and seek to destroy him. Uh, I will put enmity 
that's that's uh, and darker because it's quoting part of um, the the word EBA, and uh, I'm not just sure how that's pronounced. Denotes the blood feud that runs deepest in the heart of man. CF numbers uh, uh, 35, um, 19, and 20. Ezekiel 25, 15 uh, through 17, and chapter uh, 35, uh, verses 5 and 6. Thou shalt bruise, and they uh, they have your S-H-U-P, shup, or something like that. A um, prophecy of continuing struggle between the descendants of the woman and the serpents to destroy each other. The verb sup is rare. Uh, CF uh, Job 9.17, Psalm 137.11. It is the same in both clauses. When translated uh, crush, it seems appropriate uh, to the reference concerning the head of the serpent, but not quite so accurate in describing the attack of the serpent on man's heel, it is also rendered lie in wait for, aim at, or LXX watch for. I have a quick comment, Clifton. So we have the Wycliffe Bible Commentary telling us that Genesis chapter 3.15 is a warning about the descendants of the woman and the descendants of the serpent who are going to attempt to destroy each other. And that's in a Wycliffe Bible commentary, right? A prophecy of continuing struggle between the descendants of the woman and of the serpent to destroy each other. That's in the Wycliffe Bible commentary. And that is what we in 2C line Israel identity would assert that it means. And that's what the plain language means, that there's two sets of descendants here who wish to destroy each other and who were prophesied in, in that struggle, in that continuing struggle. That's the way they read it, and that's the way we read it. And and it, it would be neat for us to know, it would be fitting for us to know how to identify those two sets of descendants and which side of the line we fall on. And, and that's the essence of two seed lines. And it speaks of them um, uh, as the serpent race and the evil kingdom. Yes. And 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 as long as long as we're in this life, it says, you know, as, as long as life continues, uh, men would hate him and seek to destroy him. Well, well, I'm surprised that's in the Wycliffe Bible commentary. I was too. But it's the plain language of Scripture. Yeah. It's hard to deny. And the, the 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 Ted Whelans of the world, they jump through hoops to deny that. Right. And that's some of my earliest research that I've done, and that's some. This is one of the real gems that I I don't th call anything jewels because it has J E W, and that's so why I call I call it a gem. I guess that makes me prejudiced. Uh, yeah, I'm prejudiced. Um, I'll get back here and read again. Uh, the Vulgate renders it. Uh, um, Conqueray. Contaret, uh bruise is the first instance, and uh, 
In, I don't know how to pronounce in that. In City of Barris. In City of Barris, lie in wait uh, in the other uh, clause. So they took the same Hebrew word, in, and when Jerome translated the Vulgate and translated it into two different Latin words. I just copied what it was <laughs> in the... Uh, I, I didn't go into those words. I, I guess that would be a study in itself. Thus we have the famous passage called the Protovangelum, uh, first gospel is what it means. Uh, the, uh, you know, it's the first gospel. I mean, uh, um, I can say, you know, I, I think that's right. The, the well, might... well, right. It's the first gospel, meaning it's the first announcement of, of the good news, which is found in Christ. It's the Protovangelium or the Protovangelium. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, it's better. Uh, proto means one, uh, first, yeah. And, and... Uh, the announcement of the uh, prolonged struggle, perpetual antagonism, wounds on both sides, and eventual victory for the seed of the woman. You know, there's some more seed line uh, from Wycliffe. Uh, God's promise that the head of the serpent was to be crushed pointed towards the coming of Messiah and uh, guaranteed victory. This Assurance fell on the ears of God's earliest creatures as a blessed hope of the redemption. Now, in Romans chapter 16, verse 20, we see Paul tell the Romans that Yahweh would crush Satan under their feet shortly. And 12 years after Paul wrote that, or approximately 12 years in my estimation, it may have been as many as 15 we see that the Roman armies destroyed Jerusalem, and according to Josephus, they slew 1.1 million of the people in Jerusalem and, and, and the surrounding cities in the rebellion of 65 through 70 AD. That must be what Paul was referring to when he wrote that Yahweh, that God would crush Satan under their feet shortly. So we see the Edomite Jews at Jerusalem were referred to by Paul as Satan. Collectively, they are they're the descendants of Cain, as we see in John chapter 8 and Luke chapter 11, that they, the Christians, had fled the city, and, and, and we see that they had the warnings of Christ when they see Jerusalem encompassed by armies to flee the city. Joseph has said that most of the good people in the city had fled, and that only the rabble-rousers and the troublemakers were left. And, and, and we see that Paul must have been referring to that. Well, I see the Romans as their Judah, and that, the, that they that literally their feet was Christ's feet. Well, well right. And, you know, yes. uh, uh, and maybe more, uh, uh, not literally, but allegorically, the, right. the, their, their, their feet. And, and they were the kinsmen avengers. Yeah, they were they were they were they're the ones that should avenge. Yes, but they didn't do the whole job. They're, they're still... Well, well, no, because there's many other prophecies in play. There are, and and not all of the seed of the serpent was in Jerusalem, and and there are many other prophecies in play. So there's got to be some more treading down. Oh yeah, there's going to be a lot more treading down. Well, anyway, the Zonovan Pictorial Encyclopedia, the Bible, Volume Three, uh, page uh, seven eighty two. And this is speaking about Kenites, 
meaning metal workers, clan or tribal name of semi-nomadic peoples in South Palestine and Sinai, uh, the Aramaic and Arabic ethnologies of the root GYN shows that it has to do with uh, metal and uh, metal work. Thus, the Hebrew word from this root, lance, um, is quote, lance, unquote. Uh, this probably indicates the Kenites were metal workers, especially since Sinai and Wadi Arabia were rich in high-grade copper. Uh, B.F. Um, O.W.F. Albright has uh, pointed out in the Ben Hassan mural uh, in Egypt, 19th century B.C. Uh, as an illustration of such a wandering group of smiths. Well, well, my my, I have one quick inter interjection. My belief, okay, I can't prove it, but my belief is that the word. You see, the word Cain originally meant to acquire, right? And and that's found in Strong's Concordance in, in his Hebrew dictionary. My belief is that Cain, Cain's descendants were metal workers, and we see some of the things that they did described in Genesis chapter 4, like that, that they played the pipes and things like that, required metal work. Well, well they were metal workers so that the word... The, the family name, the Cain, the, the Cain name eventually came to mean a metal worker the same way that the Hittites were merchants and, and the Canaanites were merchants. And we see that the word Canaanite came later in history to mean merchant. Well, you know, one of the th one of the things that was supposed to be good with musical instruments. Yes. And, and you take a Jew and put, you know, let him play a piano. And he'll make that thing dance practically. Yeah, yeah well, the Jews uh, do have a, that more than their share proportionally of, of musicians. Well, you know, no I've noticed this, the uh, Mexicans too. The, their part, uh, they they got Jewish blood among them, and and uh, they're fairly good on musical instruments too. Yes, they are. So, uh, you know, uh, the listener can uh, make of it what they you know wish. When I get back to uh, um, W.F. Albright talking about the Ben Hansen mural in Egypt. The mural depicts uh, 36 men, women, and children in characteristic Semitic dress, uh, le uh, leading along with other animals, donkeys, laden with musical instruments, musical instruments, uh, weapons, and an item which all, uh, Albright depicted as a bellows. Well, if they're metal workers, they need a bellows, right? Right, and, and it's amazing that they confuse the Kenites for Semitic, right? Yeah. That, because the Jews are confused with Semites to this day, right? Uh, he has further, further, you know, meaning Albright, he has further noted that Lamech's three children, uh, uh, Genesis uh, 4, 19, were responsible for herds, Jabel, musical instruments, Jubal, Metalwork, Tubal Cain, uh, or Tubal the Smith, the, the three occupants, uh, which seem most evident in the mural. The three occupations, yes. Yeah. Uh, second quote from the same article, quote, the early monarchy during the period, uh, a significant uh, concentration of Kenites were located 
in southern uh, Judean territory. This is clear from 1 Samuel 15.6 cited above and also from uh, David's relation with them. Uh, Post-exilic uh, references in 1 Chronicles 2.55 the families of the scribes living at Jabez are said to be Kenites. Apparently during the kingdom, the exile period, uh, certain Kenites had given up nomadic smithing and had taken on a more sedimentary but equally honorable, I don't know, that's what it says here, so I have to read it that way, profession of scribe. Well, well, they went from being scribes to bankers real quick. <laughs> a Peake's commentary on the Bible, page 114, the etymology of the name suggests that they were smiths or artificers, um, a theory which is supported by their association with the Wadi Arabia, uh, where, where there were copper deposits which had been worked uh, by the Egyptians since the middle of the third millennium, uh, uh, probably BC, you know. Uh, it doesn't say BC here, but that. Uh, yes, that's. Uh, that's Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary on the whole Bible uh, has this to say uh, on the Kenite page 293, and I think that's a one volume. I, yeah, I have a, a a six volume set here, you know, that's a little bit larger. The families of, quote, the families of the scribes, either civil or ecclesiastical officers of the Ken, of Kenite origin who were uh, classified with the tribe of Judah, uh, not as being descended from it, but as dwellers within the, its territory and is a measure, and in a measure incorporated with the people. And they're the bad figs. Yeah, they they worked their way. They they infiltrated, didn't of they? Of course, they're infiltrating today. They're always infiltrating. That's what they do. You know, there's a few gems in in these uh, commentaries, but about ninety five percent of you have to throw away. Uh, Matthew Poole commentary on the Holy Bible has this to say on the Kenites, Volume One, page uh, uh, seven seventy eight. Quote, the scribes, either civil, who were public notaries, uh, no, am I pronouncing that right? Notaries. Notaries, yeah, public notaries, who wrote and signed legal instruments or ecclesiastical. Damn lawyers, right? Absolutely. And are here mentioned not as if they were of the tribe of Judah, but because they dwelt among them. Say some of these commentators know that these people are not of the tribe of Judah, but they're dwelling among them and being counted as, uh, uh, and and are here mentioned not as if they were of the tribe of Judah, but because they dwelt among them and probably were allied uh, to them by marriages. Well, well, that's the sin of Jeremiah chapter two. That the sin that can't be washed off. You know, it, it's fairly good commentary, uh, uh, and so in a manner incorporated with them, which dwelt, or rather dwelt, Hebrew 
were dwellers, or uh, the other translation, which dwelt, may seem to insinuate that these were the sons of Judah, which they were not. But this translation only signifies cohabitation with them. Is that New York City, maybe? For which cause they are here named with them. Well, well, the bottom line is that the commentaries get a lot of, they can't help but get some things right, right? They do get a lot of things right. They're not always wrong. Even though they're universalists, they make a lot of other mistakes. They follow the church errors that they do get a lot of stuff right. Here we've seen them get a lot of stuff right. The Kenites are found on both sides of the flood. There were no Kenites on the ark. The Kenites dwelt. The, the race of Cain had to survive to the time of Christ. Well, Christ could have never told the Pharisees that they were responsible, that their race was responsible for the blood of Abel. And this is how the race of Cain survived to the time of Christ. They were in Palestine all that time. They were kissing up to David. They were kissing up to Saul. They were infiltrating into Judah. Jeremiah wrote about it in Jeremiah chapter 2, that, that they, they were the mixing with Judah they became the bad fig Jews. We saw Esau took Canaanite wives. The Canaanites were interbred with the Kenites. They were interbred with the, the Rephaim. And they were bred with several other races in, in, in Genesis chapter 15 that cannot be found in the genealogy of Noah that we have no idea where they came from. And, and, and all these people mingled together they're the Arabs of Palestine. They're the Arabs of Mesopotamia today. And they are the Jews. And that's where they came from. And that's the essence of two seed line, that these people who have forever been adversarial to Christ, who forever been adversarial to Christianity, descended in part from Cain and Canaan and Esau. You know, in this history... The way, the way it, you know, we've uh, gone over it here and researched it. Noah's flood absolutely could not have been a, a, a worldwide flood because the Kenites survived that flood. Absolutely. And they were And the Rephaim survived. And the, and the Kenites were not on the ark. Right. And the Rephaim were not on the ark. All right. And, and, and there are other people mentioned in Genesis chapter 15 that do not have a, a, um, a mention in Genesis chapter 10. You know, like I, the Gergeshites. I, I used to believe in a worldwide flood. But when I saw the Kenites got through there, you know, I dropped that uh, theory real quickly. The, the Gergeshites are not mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. And, and there are probably others. That, that aren't, that the Canaanites mingled with that, that are aliens. The Perizzites are not. I don't think they're mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Oh, uh, there's uh, three of them. Uh, and the next time it's mentioned, there's seven. And, and it'll speak of the seven Canaanite nations, even up in Acts. Uh, and I think the, the theory that uh, three of the tribes were completely absorbed. And the Kenites would be one of them. So uh, evidently, 
all those, uh, you know, the Canaanite tribes were a lot from Noah's uh, <coughs> cursed son, Canaan, kicked out of the family. And, uh, he didn't have anybody else to marry, so he evidently married. But uh, I see it as those tribes were absorbed by, by the other seven. Well, well, absolutely, because we see the Kenites are still in the land, but they're just not significant enough to be to to be named in in later on in the Bible in Joshua and Judges. <coughs> well, well, if you have anything else, Dad. Uh, but if you study it in in real detail, there are a couple more tribes there, and it's hard to place. Where they fit in. Right, because they're not mentioned in Scripture. They, they appear in Scripture from Genesis chapter 15. And, and, and they're, well, well I, would, I would think that they're not of the Adamic race. And they're probably related to the fallen angels. Probably. They're yeah. probably uh, an Arab, you know, and they probably should... A lot of people don't know what the uh, Hebrew word Arab means, E-R-E-B or something like that. Uh, and it's it means sundown when the sun isn't, when it isn't completely light and it isn't completely dark. Well, right, it's towards dusk because you know, it's, it means it's halfway to grow between, dark. Well, you've got a person that's halfway between a white person and... and He's growing dark. He's yeah. getting dusky. Yeah. That's what Arab means. It means to, as a verb, it means to get dusky or to grow to dark. It also means to together. Well, well, yeah, two diverse kinds. <laughs> and that's why the word Arab means mingled or mixed. Well, you, well, you take the DNA, there's two strands, and, and doesn't that kind of uh, twine around? Well, well, right, and there's only one way people grow dark. There's only one way people can grow dark, and, and that's... To, it's to, not, not being under the sun, sunlight. Right, it has nothing you know, at all to do with the sun. Not as not as Stephen Jones says. Right. and, and not, the, not as these one daughter is supposed to be, be real suntan, you know? Oh, yeah, right. She's suntan, and so are Filipinos. The, the, um, the mingled multitudes of Exodus who followed the children of Israel out of Egypt, that word mingled, if you check the Hebrew, is the word Arab. Yeah. The word Arab means mingled. And that's how the King James translators understood it. So when they saw that word used as an adjective in Exodus of the people who followed the Israelites out of Egypt, they wrote mingled. The mingled multitude. And, no one, uh, and, and, and probably they were ones that was instrumental in uh, getting Israel to make a golden calf and, and Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm sure some of them were those Kenites that, that um, the archaeologists found, that which you just cited, found in, in depicted on the Egyptian murals. Because they were camp followers, that they, they were people seeking to profit off of the, the, um, that name, the, the following the, the, the train of people leaving Egypt. Well, you know, they had a whole another set of uh, pharaohs there in Egypt. And and I think that they they were these uh, uh, Kenites that had moved in there, and and uh, they dressed like pharaohs and everything, but uh, they they ruled from two different. There was one uh, uh, the real Egyptian ruled from one place, and the 
Yeah. Well, well, right. They they ruled from the Delta. They were the Hyksos. They ruled from the Delta. They're always trying to infiltrate and and mimic their host the host nations that they infiltrate. We see that everywhere they they go today. And and they dress up like them, take their names, and yep. That they wear Armani suits and 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 take German and English names today. Okay, this is William Fink and Clint, Clifton Emmerheiser. We will be here tomorrow night. At, at 8 p.m. on TalkShoe on Christogenia Saturdays, and we're going to present Clifton's paper, The Problem with Genesis 4.1. And tomorrow night, it, it's not fully determined yet. I'll, I'll announce it at the beginning of the program. But tomorrow night, we will probably be open to taking telephone calls after our presentation. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. Call recording has been completed. There were about, about 30. two hours and ten minutes, maybe. Yeah, there were about thirty people in there today. I, I was hoping you'd get more conversational with all my notes in between. We should probably gotten to three hours, but um, that you you seem too um eager to get back to your paper all the time. Well, I I was just trying to fit you in uh, wherever you get in there. You had more notes that you didn't use? No, 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 but I had planned on my notes being a little more conversational. Oh. Yeah, you know, back yeah. and forth. But you were just waiting for me to get done so you could go on with your paper. I was speeding up like uh, Eli. <laughs> Skipping a lot of stuff like Eli. <laughs>